Hey, this is Jan and you're listening to the Home and Garden podcast. I'm sitting here with Nicholas Gill from David Phillips, UK-based company. David, why don't you introduce yourself really quick and give us a little bit of your personal background? Sure. Hi, Ian. Pleasure to be talking with you. Yeah, so my name's uh, Nick Gill. I'm the CEO of David Phillips. We're a UK-based end-to-end supplier of interior design, fit-out and furniture services in the UK. We specialize in the private rented sector and within that, the very fast-growing build-to-rent market, what's called in the US the multifamily market, student accommodation, developer and investor markets uh, here in the UK. And we've got a full range of services from the delivery of individual items of furniture through to the total design bespoke procurement and installation of uh, prime London and uh, prime UK property interior design projects. Got it. And basically you're saying you're mainly focusing on bigger kind of projects in this quick growing multifamily home, student accommodation, et cetera, et cetera, sector, right? Yeah, there's a lot of there's a lot of opportunity there. And the large projects are quite attention grabbing because they tend to be large. Yeah. But you know, both both in terms of the logistic demands, but also obviously in terms of the value of those projects. But I would say that we started almost 25 years ago now as a business focusing on the individual investor who wanted, and I'm sure we can get into this, but the individual investor who who wanted a single piece of furniture replaced. They wanted it replaced really quickly and they wanted it delivered with no, no hassle and no inconvenience to themselves. And actually, the founders of the business, who are two guys called David and Philip, which is how we got our name, had this idea. They were kind of young guys, 21, 22 at the time. And they had this idea, almost kind of pre-internet and certainly pre-home delivery, to start a service which aggregated um, all the individual pieces of furniture and accessories and appliances that an investor might need or a landlord might need when they were running a property you know, as a business. And they would aggregate them all and then control the delivery of it, of those pieces into their customers. So that's where we started. And that's still very much a significant part. It's about a quarter of what we do still to this day. Makes sense. And then with that specific segment, how are the needs of these people different than, let's say, someone who personally wants to purchase some furniture, get it fitted in their room, et cetera, et cetera? That's a really good question because that goes to the heart of our business. You know, we've all, I'm sure all of us listening to this uh, have acquired furniture or accessories for themselves. So it might be a piece of art, maybe a rug, a light, through to something substantial like a sofa or a bed or a mattress. And obviously when you're doing that for yourself, you have a view to what you like, what you feel is beautiful, obviously what you feel you can afford, because you know that you're going to be living with that piece for five years, 10 years, 15 years. If you spend your money wisely, it might indeed be a piece of furniture that you could hand down to your children or friends or, or others that might be close to you in the fullness of time. When you're doing, when you're buying furniture as an investor, you're looking really very differently. You want a piece of furniture which is going to meet the aesthetic tastes of the many, not the few, and not you. So I may see something. When we were a younger company, I used to spend a lot of my time on the road uh, talking to manufacturers, 
And I go and have a look to see what their products were. And I might find, I very quickly learned that what I found was attractive or what I found was unattractive often was the exact opposite in the minds of our customers. And the important thing, therefore, is to that we seek to do is remove our own personal biases and prejudices from the furniture that we sell. And we try to allow our customers to put together interiors that are attractive to many people, not a small number of people or not the individual. But we also face demands from our customers that we supply furniture to them really fast. So we started and in fact, we still deliver as a next day business, because if you're an investor and you have a resident in a property and they need a new mattress or there's a problem with a sofa or a coffee table, they want to replace the very next day. So we hold stock, we deliver it ourselves, we have our own distribution fleet, and we have our own warehouses and indeed our installation teams. And are as much of a service company as we are a product company. And that makes us very different, I think, to most retailers, for example. Yeah, that's very interesting. How do you combine those two aspects that you mentioned, right? So the product side of things with the service side of things? Yeah. Do you know what, Yeah, That is a debate in the early days of the company that we had all the time. Are we a product company or are we a service company? And the conclusion was that actually, whilst the product is super important to us, At the end of the day, if our product isn't attractive, if it isn't well made, if it isn't priced well, then customers won't buy it. But having said that, the reason they come to us as opposed to going to a retailer, for example, is because of the service that we offer. So we need to ensure that we have the product in stock. We need to ensure that our teams are really well trained in the delivery of it. And we need to ensure that everything else that goes around that, so the ordering process, the process of payment, for example, um, those things are really smooth. And there's an interesting twist here, which is that quite often the people that are ordering the furniture are not the people that are going to use the furniture. And actually, more than that, quite often the people that order the furniture are not even going to see the furniture because they may be sitting, they may be working for as part of a customer's procurement team sitting, for example, in London, and they may be ordering on behalf of a property which is situated in a city outside of London, it could be Birmingham or Manchester. So they, they they never actually even see the furniture. So the service element is really important to us. Very interesting. And then what was your personal background before joining the company? You know, I think when you're about five or six or seven, your parents say to you, you know, what do you want to be in life? And some people say, well, you know, I want to be an astronaut or I want to be a, a you know, world famous footballer. I remember saying to my my parents, yeah, no, what I want to do is I, I want to sell furniture for a living. Um, oh, wow. <laughs> no, I, I'm joking. I'm joking. <laughs> I, um, well, after I left university, I actually joined uh, the investment banking world here in London. And I was lucky enough, I spent about five years in London. And then I spent the next seven years of my career pretty much working, well, working internationally. So I worked in Hong Kong, um, Buenos Aires, Argentina, and then New York. And then I returned to London. And shortly after coming back to London, I loved the job and it was fantastic. I used to work in a part of banking called uh, Mergers and Acquisitions, M&A. Oh, nice. Yeah. We, you know, we helped, well, we advised companies buying and selling uh, parts of or indeed entire companies. And it was fascinating work. And I loved the firms that, um, that, I, that I worked for and, and indeed the people I worked with. But I also knew that I wanted to move from being an advisor to being a doer, if you like. So I started with a 
friend of mine, a small investment company, which we ran for a couple of years. We were looking for companies to invest in, and we did some of that for a couple of years. And then we thought it would be really interesting to go and see if we could buy a business ourselves and find one that we could grow. And uh, we found David Phillips in 2005. And the idea was to own it for three, five years, something like that. And then, as is the way, sell the business and then go and find something else to do and try and grow an investment business. And um, here I am, 15 or so years later, still growing the business because there's still lots of growth open to us. Mm -hmm. Interesting. And what situation was the business in when you bought it? So was it in a distressed spot? What was it like? Or was it just regular day-to-day -day kind of situation? It was really interesting. As I say, it had been started by two guys, Philip and David. And they'd grown the business from a startup, literally a sort of garage startup, to, I think in terms of revenues, it was about um, about two million pounds. And there were eight people in the business when, when I came in. We were sitting in a pretty horrible warehouse in East London. Whilst we're still in East London, we're slightly nicer warehouse uh, conditions now. But yeah, it was eight people. It was kind of very early stage. It was growing fast, but it had outgrown itself, if you know what I mean. So the management team, David and Philip had, had um, got to a point, which I think is not uncommon in, in early stage businesses, where the growth of the company had outstripped uh, the management and they were looking to sell the business in order to take some of the, the pressure off themselves. So I came into a situation which was growing. That was great. It was clear that the company was doing a really good job for its customers, but we needed to put in a lot of the basics of the business. So we didn't have a, a finance team. We didn't really have a, an aftercare team. We didn't have much of a website at all. Our product management was, was pretty poor. You know, a lot of our, the way that we looked after our people was quite uh, manual. You know, it was kind of classic early stage, uh, early stage business. And you mentioned you had a partner, right? Yes, yes. So how do you distribute responsibilities uh, between you and your partner and why? Oh, well, right. Okay. So yeah, so I, I bought the business with a great guy called Will Islin. And um, yeah, we worked together for the first seven years of our time at Dave Phillips. And he actually exited in 2012. He wanted to go off and do some other things. So he actually sold his share in 2012. And we brought in a private equity company uh, at that time. And they were investors in us for about five years. And then they, as is the way with private equity and, and professional investors, they sold their shareholding to another private equity firm in 2017. And that's who we've been working with since that time. Why did you not exit yet? Or why didn't you exit it overall? Yeah, it's a really interesting question. I was perhaps from the beginning uh, more involved with the running of the business than Will. We still had our, our investment company. So he basically went off to, to do that and... And I was involved in David Phillips. You know, um, I could see that there was lots of future potential for the company at that time. And, and so wanted to participate in that as, you know, for as long as I could. And where is the company now? So we today still headquartered in London, but we have a business in Manchester in the northwest of England, uh, northwest of Britain, which we started in 2009 is, and is now a really significant part of our business. We have a sales office in Birmingham as well. So we've got three locations in Britain. We opened an office in Hong Kong in April 2021, right in the middle of COVID, which was an interesting experience. And we've just opened about a month ago an office in Dubai as well. And we've got so we've got a small sales office in Hong Kong and in and in Dubai. 
we've grown from those eight people to around about 280 people uh, now. And we've also grown the services that we um, that we provide as well. Interesting. What's the rationale behind picking those specific locations? It's very interesting. There's always been a lot of interest in acquiring property in, in Britain from investors who uh, are based in China. They like the diversification. They're, they're, um, the Chinese, as I'm sure you know, are big investors in uh, residential property. And they've always liked the British property market. Um, so it makes sense to have a sales office there because we're able to deal with Hong Kong-based investors in Mandarin or, or indeed Cantonese and in their time zone as well. And it's really frustrating for a Chinese customer to try and deal with someone in the UK who either doesn't speak the language or is, has an eight-hour time difference. And Dubai, it's a kind of a similar rationale. There are a lot of people in the Middle East channeled through Dubai who are interested in, in acquiring property in London. And so having closer proximity to customers makes a lot of sense. Yeah, from the US to UK, it's not really that much of a dynamic. And then also it's a really competitive market with basically everything, right, compared to the UK or maybe Central Europe. So I see... Okay. And then what would you say is the current vision of the company? So it's it's really interesting. We have just spent a bit of time looking at our vision, purpose and mission because we we hadn't I think it's a, it's an important thing for a company to do from time to time. And in particular there's a substantial challenge that the furniture and design industry needs to meet in, in our opinion, which is the challenge of uh, sustainability and the environmental performance of, of our product. So we've actually just um, we've just changed our um, vision statement. And our vision now is to change our market's use of furniture and its impact on the world. And that speaks, we hope, to two things. As we've developed the business, we have, I think in a, in a small way, been one of the leading companies to change people's investors, uh, when I say people, so investors' opinion of the role of furniture in a commercial context in terms of delivering happiness, wellness, and a higher standard of life for residents. And that's been something that's over the last 15 years or so, you can really see how investors now think quite hard about the role of furniture and the value of furniture in uh, in their properties and their developments and how it can add value to their residents but also speaks to the vision statement we also hope speaks to the growing recognition and the role that we want to play in having our customers or helping our customers understand the impact of furniture from an environmental perspective in terms of um, the impact on the world and change our customers' um, view of furniture. It's a really interesting point because from like, there's lots of arguments about the environmental stuff, pro and cons, right? What would be kind of like the reasons for an investor to invest in sustainable furniture versus non-sustainable? That's a great question. It really cuts to the heart of it. I'm an investor. I'm in business to generate a return for myself or for my customer, my, my investor. And so why does sustainability matter to me? It's really interesting. We've just participated in a survey with a uh, UK-based business called Homeviews. Homeviews is a relatively young company. I think it started a couple of years ago. And it surveys residents and their opinions of the buildings they live in 
and the, the people who manage those buildings. And literally this morning, they uh, Home Views have released a sustainability report. And I think it's north of, I don't have it right to hand. And if uh, if Rory and Hannah from Home Views uh, listen to this, um, forgive me, but I think more than 80% of people that they surveyed um, said that sustainability was important to them. So I think at a very basic level, yeah, and I think um, why would investors care? It's because their customers in turn care and increasingly are interested in what their building policies around um, sustainability are. And I think I think it goes beyond that because we think that over time, and it's for sure it's not the case right now, but over time people will make a decision as where they live and the buildings they live in based on what they see to be their building managers, their building owners approach to the climate challenge. So I think that that's on one hand, that's a very sort of macro level. On the other hand, frankly, they can save money. We've just introduced a take back scheme for some of the larger projects that we work on. The scheme is called Release. And what we do is we guarantee that at the end of a piece of furniture's useful life will come to your property, will remove the furniture, will inspect it, will grade it, and we'll do one of three things with it, basically. If it's in good shape and we can clean it, refurbish it, and make it as, put it in good a condition as it is when it's new, we'll return it to you. And instead of having to buy a new piece of furniture, you can have a piece of refurbished furniture. Some furniture, frankly, is at the end of its life. It might be a dining chair that's had five or 10 years of hard wear, and it's not a piece that you would put into a property that you're seeking to rent, but it's still great for, for example, for charity. And there is in many developed societies, and unfortunately it's the case in Britain for sure, there is something called furniture poverty, which is to say people um, who who are lacking in basic items of furniture. And you know, if you don't have a bed, you don't have anywhere to sit, to eat, it's fundamentally impacting on your quality of life. So we can donate that piece of furniture to an organisation which is which is addressing some of those issues. And then in the middle, so between that piece, which is in great condition with, with some cleaning and can be returned to the original owner, or that piece which has reached the end of its life, but can find a great uh, new life as a piece of once donated to a charity, there's a middle block of products which are in pretty good shape. And you'd be pretty happy to have them in a property, but perhaps not a prime property where you're seeking to achieve really strong rental value. And so we're we're selling those items of the furniture, of, uh, those items of furniture to consumers. And we launched this service about uh, three, four months ago. And I have to say, it's really beginning to develop some some traction because people understand that, frankly, they can either save money by reusing the furniture that they thought had reached the end of a, a commercial life but actually with some cleaning and repair it was as good as it was when new or they can donate the product to us we can sell it on their behalf and we can we can share the revenue so i think it's a really interesting example and i think the fashion industry was one of the first industries to address this issue yeah it's also one of the worst in terms of sustainability so it makes sense to do the first yeah yeah, 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 exactly. But, you know, it's really interesting. And the furniture industry globally is really impactful on the environment. There's, furniture is a heavy carbon asset. There's not a lot of understanding of the amount of embodied carbon there. And the end of life solution is typically to put products into landfill. And that's a really bad solution all around. 
development. So we're seeking to, to address those two challenges. I think it's also like there's lots of spaces where this is becoming more and more popular, right? Even hardware, for example, uh, refurbished laptops, uh, refurbished desktop PCs, because they can basically have like very similar performance to a completely new piece. A, it's good for the environment. B, the customer saves money as well. So it's very, it's a really good development, actually. It's very, very nice to see that it's becoming more and more of a thing. Yeah. We started about two years ago. You may, you may remember that in 2012, um, the Olympics were held in London. Mm -hmm. The apartments where the athletes stayed, the Olympic Village, after the Games left, those were sold to, well, actually, the, the, the Olympic Village was designed, uh, divided into two. Half of, the, uh, half of the buildings went to social housing and half went to a private developer. And the private developer was called Get Living. And we've worked with them for, well, since then, actually, for about the last nine years. Just before COVID happened, so the end of 2019, beginning of 2020, we were asked to help refurbish the 1,400 apartments that they had at that time in, in the Olympic Village, what is now called East Village. And when we started to look at the scale of the project, we realized that there was something like 30,000 pieces of furniture that Get Living wanted us to, wanted to remove. And clearly the financial cost of removing those and putting those into landfill was really huge. But more than that, environmentally, that would have been, you know, close to a disaster. So we worked with, we worked with Get Living to, to create this scheme called Release which, as I mentioned, we're now, after about a year, we're now ready to sort of take to the public. And what, what's really interesting about that is uh, we, we've, so far we've handled about 15,500, I think it is something like that, 15,500 items of furniture. And we've had a zero to landfill approach. So none of those items have gone to landfill. And what, what's really interesting about it is that, and what surprised Get Living, I think, is that some of the pieces of furniture that we supplied to them nine years ago when you bring them back to, you know, we, we bring them back to our to our warehouse and we have a team that look at them and, and grade them. Some of those items of furniture are actually in, in great condition. They might be nine years old, but with a little bit of love and polish, they're as good as they were the you know the day that they were sold. Um so putting those back into commercial use can make a can make an awful lot of sense. And yeah, it's it's a it's a solution which we think um, should really be adopted by you know m well much more widely and, and in particular by uh, built to rent operators. How does this compare cost wise for a customer? So getting it refurbished versus buying everything from scratch? It is somewhere between fifty to seventy five percent of buying it from new. Yeah, that sounds pretty worthwhile. <laughs> yeah, 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 I think so. I think so. Yeah, and without getting too much into the details of it, you, you may own an apartment, or as Get Living does, well, actually across the UK, they, they have, I think, about 3,500 apartments. And it may be that you originally furnished those five, 10 years ago, and it may be that some of the furniture in there is five or 10 years old, but actually some of it may only be six months old or a year old. And so that process of, of grading and separating um, then allows you to see what those are those items which which should continue in life yeah great it's really interesting and it's very good to see because it's like a it's good for the environment but then also it's like drastically cheaper than just doing everything from scratch so it's a super interesting dynamic so what would you say it would be an interesting story that you would like to share with everyone who's listening 
You know, that's a really interesting question. I think it's perhaps not so much as a story as perhaps part of a journey that we're that we're on, if I can. The other side of the the other side of the challenge is to try and develop products which perform better from a from an environmental perspective. So we're we're working with a with a Berlin-based business actually called called Planetly. I'm happy to give them a shout out. They're great guys. Um, very very thorough. They have a uh, very very thorough and detailed approach to software modeling of product. So we're working with those guys to help map the carbon in each of our pieces of furniture. And then what we're seeking to do with that is um, sit down with our customers and between between us um, design products which have a lower embodied carbon. And yeah, we've just we've just um, worked with our first customer actually on this. Um, they buy an awful lot of mattresses. Last year they bought something like one thousand five hundred mattresses for their apartments. So through the design of a new kind of mattress which has a much higher percentage of recycled materials. We were able to reduce the carbon in the mattress from uh, 77 kilos to 61 kilos, which is a when when you look at that across their entire estate and purchases last year saves 3.1 tons of carbon, which I think is is uh, something in the region of the carbon that you would find in 52 million plastic straws, and. It was really interesting, Anne, because being able to talk to uh, the board of the customer and talk to them in terms of something simple and and, um, day-to-day like plastic straws and and carbon and plastic straws, everyone knows what a plastic straw looks like. And you try and imagine what 52 million plastic straws would look like, and that's kind of unimaginable. Well, that's the, the carbon in all those plastic straws you can remove from the environment through um, some intelligent product choice. So that's uh, that's hopefully a sort of interesting story, I think, is how you can take something which is quite conceptual, which is embodied carbon. Very few people really kind of understand what, that, what that's about. And through applying it to some of your day-to-day activity, like buying mattresses, actually make that much of an impact. We think that's a nice little story to share. Mm-hmm. For sure, yeah. And then what would be sort of three key takeaways for everyone who is listening that you would like to share? Yeah, that's a, that's a really good question. I think in terms of David Phillips' history or journey over the last 15 years, 17 years that, that I've been involved, I think I think the first thing that I've come to realize is, is that it's all about the team. The team of people you know, in the company, so it might be about your sales team or your marketing team, team that work on products, whatever it might be, but also down to a small level. So each of our delivery vehicles has two guys on it. They are a team and they are the people that the customer meets, actually. So every day that they go out, they hold our reputation in their hands and you can do everything else fantastically well. But if those two people in the installation team are not very helpful when they meet their customer, you know, everything else is for nothing. So, yeah, I think, that, I think that's the first thing. It's all about team. I think the second thing is that creating new markets is, is really tough. <laughs> It takes quite a long time. You know, obviously, people were buying furniture for properties uh, to rent um, before Dave Phillips came around. But, you know, what we have done is changed, for example, many uh, agents' view of, of furniture. And as, as I was saying, the role that furniture can play in creating wellness for tenants 
is really significant. And I think we've played quite a significant part in that over the period of time, such that large parts of, of Britain now, developers wouldn't think about renting a new apartment without putting furniture in it first. It takes a heck of a long time to fulfill that vision, if you like. And along the way, you're going to fail. There are lots of things that we've tried and failed at. So, you, you know, you have to you have to kind of expect that, I think. And I think the third thing is, is about the importance of keeping an open mind and saying yes to more things that you say no to, at least uh, to begin with. I know that people say that focus is all about saying no to things. And sometimes it's really important to say, no, I'm sorry, that's either a bad idea, it's a great idea, but we don't have the resource to deal with it, or it's a great idea and we've got the resource, but it's just not as important as, as some other things that we could do. But actually, at the same time, you want to keep an open mind and say yes to things. And if you do that, it's it's interesting sometimes where conversations can take you. Mm -hmm. Very good. Nice. Any last words? Where could, for example, an investor find your firm, reach out to you guys if they're based in the UK, right? Because you don't serve the rest of Europe, I assume. Well, actually, you know, we've started to we've started to work across Europe as well. So we've we furnished from time to time quite a few apartments actually in Berlin, and we've worked with other investors in Switzerland and Paris and in Italy. But um, they they tend to be somewhat somewhat episodic. So yeah, we're beginning to we're beginning we're looking very closely now at the opportunities to furnish student property in Spain and Portugal because those two markets are growing very fast. Um, the universities there are growing fast and attracting a lot of uh, new students who don't have great accommodation to go to. So so yeah, you could find us at on the internet. We're at uh, davidphillips.com, which is p h i double l ips two l's and we're also uh and you can find release furniture at www.release-furniture.com which is the tape out scheme that we talked about cool then pleasure uh talking to you and learning about this as i think so far we didn't interview anyone where the environment was such a big focus uh, so it was a very insightful conversation so thanks a lot for being a guest and supplying our audience with this information it's very valuable absolute pleasure and thank you very much for having me